Hey, good morning. Um, so we've got some special guests here today, and that is, uh, if you are typically um, over in that other building um, where it's lots of fun, uh, raise your hand. <laughs> Look at this. We have all of these um, uh, kids that are part of our elementary ministry. Uh, they're with us today. Let, let's give these guys a hand. This... It's really fun that you're here on Memorial Day weekend. Um, Memorial Day, uh, this is the day that we remember. We, um, we do that solemnly. We do that with celebration. Those that have served our country and given their life for our country um, in the name of freedom as they have um, battled for that in our country. And so, we remember that this morning, and um, we don't take that lightly. That's part of the reason why we can gather and do what we're doing this morning. So, happy Memorial Day to you. All right, so this is, um, this is for you. If you're in the elementary ministry, I'm, I, this is… So, what happens… My name's Ross, by the way, and I'm one of the pastors. And your parents are over here on Sunday mornings, and we open the Bible, and they listen to me preach. And how preaching goes is this, I, I give an introduction uh, that tries to get your attention. And then we read a portion of the Scripture, and then I'm going to talk through the portion of the Scripture, and uh, then we'll, we'll wrap up at the end, and I'll say, these are all the things I said, and then we'll, then we'll pray. So, to kind of orient you um, what we're doing here, that's what a sermon is. And this morning, the introduction is for you, because I want to remind you of one of the last scenes of the Avengers Endgame. Now, maybe your parents haven't let you watch it yet, and that's okay. I understand that. But at some point, um, they're going to be out of town, and you're going to have a chance. <laughs> right? Clint, I mean, that's what happens. I, you did it. Um, that sounds bad. Uh, so, but anyways, but let me tell you about it. So, so the, the guy that's the main character in all the Marvel movies from beginning to end, uh, although he's not in all the movies, but, but he's kind of the main character. His name's Iron Man. Yeah, Iron Man, all right? Tony Stark. And Tony Stark, he's a trouble character, and we're not going to get into all that. But there's a, there's a scene at the very end where the bad guy of all the, of the uh, of, uh, uh, Marvel movies... And Tony Stark, who's kind of the hero of all the Marvel movies, they're standing there at the very end. It's the last showdown. And the bad guy's named Thanos. And Thanos, he's got, you know, he's got this glove, and in this glove, he's got all these stones. And with these stones, he has all this power. And what he wants to do is he wants to wipe out humanity. But in the midst of a, of a fight and a skirmish and some wrestling, um, Tony Stark has taken the stones, and he has the stones for himself. And so, what Thanos is planning to do is he looks at Tony Stark, and he's telling him that he lost, and he's got this glove, and all he has to do is snap his fingers with all these powerful stones, in it, and all of, the, of, of humanity will go away. And Tony says something like to him, you, you're not going to win, and he says, oh, no, I'm going to win because I'm inevitable, he says. And he snaps his fingers, and nothing happens. The camera pans over to Iron Man, Tony Stark, 
And he looks at him and says, I'm Iron Man. And he snaps it. And all the bad guys go away. It's this great moment. The good wins. The good wins over the bad. It, it's it's um, uh, the bad guy who thought he was going to uh, control everything with these stones. He ends up not having them. And all of a sudden, this man, this, this Iron Man, says, I'm Iron Man, and turns it on him. Now, in some ways, that's what we're going to see in the passage today. In some ways, that's what this whole Sermon on the Mount is all about. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, it's Jesus' first teaching. He's come into his own. He's started his ministry. He spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting. He's called disciples. He's been baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And now he steps up onto the mountaintop, and he's going to teach his disciples. And as he's teaching his disciples, a whole crowd begins to follow. And what Jesus is declaring about himself in this sermon, it's kind of like he's saying, he's looking at all the religious people, looking at all of Israel, all of Rome, all the Gentiles, all of everybody, and he's saying, I am Jesus. And it is with that authority that he's going to speak to the people that are on the crowd. You know, as you think about it, Jesus was wildly popular in his day, and yet one of the most mystifying things as you read the Gospels is that everybody ends up turning on Jesus in the end. That this man who was wildly popular and did all of the things he did and said all of the things that he said, in the very end, he was handed over to be crucified on a cross. And the question is, what is it that got Jesus in so much trouble? If the culmination of everything he came to do was the cross and the resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's why he came. That's why he stepped out of eternity and into history and took on this, this flesh and, and blood and bones. That the one who created everything became part of the creation. And he came so that he could be crucified and then ultimately resurrected. But you can't get to the crucifixion until you ask the question, what is it that got Jesus in so much trouble? What is it that, wanted, that, that made people want to put Jesus to death? What is it that fueled the hatred of the opposition that they would conspire to have Jesus crucified on a Roman cross? What caused him to hate the man? Who, who healed the blind and the lame and showed interest in the outcasts and the poor. And he spoke tenderly to widows and children. Well, I would argue this morning, as Matthew tells the story, as Mark tells his story, and Luke tells the story of Jesus, and John tells the story of Jesus, that, that what made them so angry, what got Jesus in so much trouble, it is the claims that Jesus made about the authority that he had. That when Jesus says, I am Jesus, what he's saying is, I am God. 
You see, Jesus claimed to have authority over things that those people that were listening to him, the hearers, the, the crowd, the religious leaders, they knew only God had authority over those things. And yet Jesus says, no, I have authority over those things because I and my Father are one. Few things Jesus claimed to have authority over. One is he had the authority to forgive sins. Only God could forgive sins, and yet Jesus says, I have the authority to forgive sins. In fact, Johnny read that this morning from Mark chapter 2. You can also find it in Matthew chapter 9. Johnny was kind of a, it's kind of a children's sermon is what you did this morning. Got first children's sermon at Bethel. It's pretty cool. He also claimed to have authority over the Sabbath. The Sabbath was this high and holy day. It was, the, it, was, um, it was something that only God had authority over. Only God had authority over the sacred calendar. And yet in Matthew chapter 12, there's a story about the disciples walking through a grain field and they're hungry and they're picking the, the, the heads off the grain and eating them. Something the Pharisees had taught was forbidden to do on the Sabbath and so they accused Jesus of not keeping the Sabbath, and yet Jesus says, I, I have authority over the Sabbath. In Matthew 21, the triumphal entry, when he comes in on the donkey, and all the crowds there, and they're saying, you know, Hosanna, uh, um, blessed be the, the Lord God, but um, you, you're the king. This is what they're saying as he's coming in, and the disciples are going crazy. I mean, the, the religious people are going crazy. They said, tell these people to stop saying that. And he says, I can't tell him to stop, to stop speaking the truth. He had authority. He was the king. Well, the final event that's recorded in Matthew is Jesus comes in after the, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, and he ends up cleaning the temple, cleansing the temple. In fact, the way Jesus says it is, this is my house. And the religious leader said, well, how can you say that? By what authority are you able to say that? Well, those are the events. That this morning we look at actually the first event that Matthew records that got Jesus in trouble. Jesus is claiming authority over the law, the very law of God, the law from God. And, and in this whole rest of Matthew, uh, beginning in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, going all the way to the end of the verse, uh, end of the chapter, Jesus is going to claim to have authority over God's law. He has the authority and the right to interpret the law and to oversee what the law is about. And as Jesus is standing there preaching to this crowd, the authority of God blankets that hillside there on the north end of the Sea of Galilee as Jesus taught this. Look with me, chapter 5. I'm going to begin in verse 7. I'm going to, we're going to look at two sections this morning. I'm going to start in verse 17. We'll look at the first section, and then we'll look at the, the second section that comes right after it. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, 
until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever exalts one, uh, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, Jesus is saying two things in this first section. He's prepared for the critics. He's, He's answering the accusations. And the first answer he gives is he's saying, look, my teaching... What I'm teaching here, it is in absolute harmony with the Old Testament. That's what's meant when he says the law and the, and the prophets. It's the whole Old Testament. See, people were confused by Jesus. They were confused by his teaching. He wasn't a Pharisee. He, he didn't have the recognized authority. He, he didn't go to the right school or any school. He wasn't from the right place. He didn't have the right mentors. On top of that, what Jesus did is he criticized those who were in authority, who were the teachers. And the questions that began to be asked about Jesus, you know, the accusations that were being made, does Jesus not believe in the holy writings? Is he trying to do away with them? Jesus wants his disciples to know, and he wants the crowd to know, and he wants the religious leaders to know. My teaching is in absolute harmony with the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish. Maybe yours says destroy. The the idea is, I haven't come to do away with the law or the prophets. I haven't come to do away with the Old Testament. Instead, I've come to fulfill the Old Testament. What does Jesus mean there? What's important to note that in Jesus' life, in all of his life, he kept the law perfectly. Though he was accused of being a lawbreaker, he was accused of being a blasphemer, he was not. He kept the law perfectly. He embodied all of its commandments in his whole life. He was perfectly conformed to the law of God, the Word of God. And after all this, Jesus is the Word made flesh. To to violate the Word of God would be to violate His very being. It's been said that Jesus added nothing to the law except one thing, perfect obedience. This is one way in which He fulfills the law and the prophets. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. They point to Him. He is their fulfillment. He fulfills all the doctrinal teachings, all the things to be believed from the Old Testament. He fulfills that. All the things that were predicted by prophecy in the law and the prophets. He's the promised one. Everything that the Old Testament talks about coming true Jesus is that true that came. He fulfilled all the 
moral demands and the legal demands. He fully obeyed the law. He also fulfilled the penalty of the law. You know, the way Paul says it about the Old Testament and the law is that the wages of sin are death. And Jesus comes and He fulfills that penalty, that consequence. He dies for the sin committed against God. He died in your place. He died in my place. And in that way, He fulfills the law. The divinely intended goal of everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. In verse 18, he says there, it's kind of a funny thing. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or, or a dot will pass from the law till all is accomplished. I, when I was a little boy, I had a King James version of the Bible, and the King James version says a jot or a tittle. So, you think an iota and a dot are confusing. A jot and a tittle, I never knew what that was. Till I went to seminary, and I took a Hebrew class, and I realized, oh, I know what he's talking about. The, the iota, the jot there, it is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It looks like an apostrophe, if you will. That's exactly what it looks like. And it's used to form the words in the Hebrew language. The, the dot or the tittle, this one's interesting. It's not an actual letter. But it's something that's used. It's a little mark that's used to distinguish letters from each other. For instance... What's the difference between an O, capital O, and a capital Q? The kickstand, right? The Q has a kickstand to keep it from, from rolling off the page. That's the dot. That's the tittle. That, that's, the, that's what he's talking about. It's just like that in the Hebrews. It's just a little... It's a little line. It keeps you, so you know, if, whether it's an O or whether it's a Q by whether it has a kickstand. Not one apostrophe, not one kickstand will pass away. Jesus is saying, all of it. That's how much will be accomplished. The big picture, the little picture, all the chapters, all the paragraphs, all the sentences, all the words, all the punctuation, all of it, all of it will be accomplished. I will fulfill all of it. There's a story that Luke tells in Luke chapter 24, right at the end, Jesus has been resurrected. He's walking on this road, it's called the road to Emmaus. And he, and he happens upon two guys and strikes up a conversation with him and kind of in one way Jesus says, hey, what's, what's new? And they'd just come from Jerusalem. And they're like, I don't know where you've been, but I mean, 
So they begin to tell, tell him about this guy named Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet. He said he was mighty in deed and word. And, and, and essentially they said, we thought he was the one. But he was condemned to death and crucified, and there was something about the third day, but we got out of there before all that. So Jesus, he kind of, kind of head thumps. It doesn't exactly say that in the text, but how could he not, right? And so Luke says, he begins his conversation with these guys, and it says this, and beginning with Moses, meaning Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he started there, and he went through all of Moses and all the prophets throughout the whole Old Testament, and he interpreted it to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He's telling those guys everything that you've ever learned, everything you've ever known about the Old Testament was all pointing to me, all of it, all of it. Jesus will go on to say, and the Apostle Paul, he picks it up in his writings to the churches. It's being accomplished in us, too, by his Spirit. Which brings me to the second thing that Jesus is saying here. So not only is his teaching in absolute harmony with the Old Testament, but his teaching of the Old Testament, his interpretation of the Old Testament is in complete disharmony with the Pharisees and the scribes. That's what he means in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven of heaven. So Jesus was a different kind of teacher than the religious leaders were. He, he didn't follow their, their pattern. See, what they did is they spent much of the time expounding kind of the minutia of the law. So there were Ten Commandments, and, and then there were they were what they had added up to be 613 laws called the mitzvah. They'd been extracted out of the writings of Moses. And then there were the interpretations of all of that, the, the rulings that were on top of all of that. They weren't teachers of the law so much as they were like eighth grade hall monitors. You know, looking to terrorize all the sixth graders in middle school. You know, you give an eighth grader, you, you know, at least some eighth graders, probably none of you if you're in eighth grade, but you know them. You know, you give them a little power, a little responsibility. Before you know it, you got a mess on your hands. They think they're the king of the school. Well, this was the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court for the Jews. They were constantly expanding the grip of the law in everyday life. At the same time, they were also looking for all the loopholes. Places they felt that they could nuance the law. Here's what they were doing. 
They were seeking to expand their power on the one hand and exploit their privilege on the other. That's not new with the 21st century. It goes way, way back. And Jesus wasn't having it. So there's a contradiction between Jesus' teaching and the way the the teaching of the religious leaders of the day were teaching. Think, Think about it this way. This is radical. But this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying this, I'm not here to do away with the law. What what I'm doing is I'm transcending the law. I'm transcending your understanding of the law, especially especially the way that it's been taught to you by the religious leaders. See, the best that they could do is they would come to a difficult passage, they would come to a difficult word in the test, text, and the best that they could do was speculate about what Moses meant or what Jeremiah meant. That they couldn't go back and ask them because they were already dead. And truth be told, they might not have wanted to know. They kind of liked their own ideas as, as much as Moses' ideas much of the time. Here's what Jesus is saying. What Moses wrote is true. In fact, it's perfect. It's the Word of God. And I'm not contradicting one stroke of Moses' pen. Not one. In fact, every single word will be fulfilled. But Jesus is saying this. But I'm not appealing to Moses. I'm not looking to the authority of Moses or the authority of Jeremiah. I am not interested in the authority of the religious leaders or all of their tradition. Guess what? I'm the authority. I'm Jesus. And you know what? Moses looked to me. And as much as you might want to ask Moses what he meant, guess what? Moses didn't always fully know. He wrote what was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, but he couldn't always see with his eyes from his place in history what it pointed to. And guess what? I revealed those words to Moses. And they point to me. See what Jesus is saying in verse 19. He says, I want you to, to teach it the way that I'm teaching it. My interpretation is definitive. And it starts here. What you understand about righteousness, that's not going to work. But what you understand about how to be right before God, that's not going to work. In verse 20, Jesus says, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees isn't going to cut it. And that would have been shocking. It would have been shocking. Because if you were sitting there on that hill or you were one of the disciples, the most holy people that you could think about. So who's a holy person? You know what they would have said? They would have named some scribe or some Pharisee that they knew. 
I mean, these guys even looked the part. They wore all the holy clothes and the tassels and the weird boxes on their heads. And everyone thought, well, if anybody's holy, those people are holy. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You actually need a holiness that exceeds theirs. And Jesus' point is this. The righteousness... The goodness, the perfection, the cleanness. The righteousness you need to enter the kingdom of heaven, (laughs) you're not going to find it on earth. Everything's broken here. Sin broke it. That's why I came. See, the righteousness you need can't be earned by what you do or how you live or how perfect you keep the law. You need a different kind of righteousness. And then Jesus is going to say, that's why I'm here. Let me show you. And so he's going to give six examples. The first example is about anger. The second one's about lust. The third one's about marriage and divorce and so on. And and through the end of the chapter, and Jesus is going to give six illustrations where righteousness as we know it, the righteousness we're, we're striving for in our own strength and by our own traditions, that righteousness doesn't cut it. Look at verse 21. He says, you've heard it said to those of old, talking about the Old Testament. You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, If you're offering a gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. This First paragraph here. Paragraph on murder. The next one's on adultery. This is the law. It's the sixth commandment and the seventh commandment. After this, Jesus is going to take a deeper dive into the other commandments that Moses gave Israel. But here, he starts with the Ten Commandments. And he starts with two that are pretty unambiguous. Don't kill people and don't commit adultery. And actually, both of those, depending on the circumstances, potentially came with the consequence of death if you broke them, so people had extra motivation not to break them. They were biggies. Here's the pattern. Did you notice it? It'll do it six times. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Then he gives the law. In this case, in verse 21, it's the sixth commandment. And then there's this interpretation from Jesus. But I say to you. Now look at what Jesus does. 
He says, you thought murder was just about not killing someone dead. And as long as you didn't murder someone, you were righteous with regard to the sixth commandment. Not so fast. That's not the way it is in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, that's not the way I meant for you to take it when I gave Moses the commandments. Sure, don't murder people. That's bad. People are created in the image of God, so don't murder them. But Jesus is saying this. See, murder murder is just the outward, external behavior. Murder's always the overflow of something else going on, something inward, something in the heart. You see, righteousness, right standing before God, what you need to be able to stand before God, this kingdom of heaven righteousness, that's measured in your heart, not simply by your behavior. So he gives some examples. In your anger, if you hurl insults, literally it's raka, abuse, or verbally tearing somebody down, or you say, you're a fool. Each of those examples in verse 22, they come with a consequence. Each consequence becomes progressively more vivid. Maybe there's a cultural gap that we can't fully cross. But anger, kind of the settled malice, you know, settled anger that's, that's nursed like a fire brought to full flame, that, that anger, that seems worse to me than calling someone a fool. You know, sticks and stones break my bones, names will never hurt me. Uh, but it turns out they could send you to Gehenna, the fires of hell, he says. Gehenna, by the way, it's what the word is translated, hell of fire. It was a trash dump outside of Jerusalem. It's where people took and threw all their trash, and it decayed, and it was corrupt, and uh, everything was corrupting. It was like garbage, and it, and it was all on fire. And it was the perfect picture of eternity apart from a relationship with God. Here's what Jesus' point is. Righteousness, what you need to stand before God, that's measured in your heart. And the difficult thing for us, Jeremiah, back in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, he tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Then he says, I, and then God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. So a couple of verses later, Jeremiah's praying to God, heal me. Would you heal me? Righteousness is measured in the heart. Jesus gives some instruction, some interpretation, some case studies to apply in verses 23 to 26. And Jesus is going to show that the law is actually 
more than just about our behavior. It is aimed at our heart. And that righteousness, our right standing before God, what we need to stand before God, that should penetrate our relationships with each other. That our relationships with each other is far more important than the rituals that we go through. And if we're sideways with somebody and anger's gotten in there, or miscommunication that's leading to mistrust, or some problems have started, we should take immediate action so that that doesn't grow. Because what matters is not exactly what happens on the outside, although that's important. It matters what's going on on the inside. See, the fault line through our nations and our cities and our neighborhoods and our schools and our churches, families, marriages, the fault line runs right through our hearts, through each of our hearts. And Jesus knows this. And our defense mechanism, you know, the human defense mechanism is to parse out all the behaviors in such a way that we find the demands, the, the truth of, of God's holiness that's written on our DNA, the, the truth that we're the image of God. We try to parse all of that out. We try to make the law something that we can actually do. And if we can make the law something we can actually do, and we can tell ourselves we're not guilty of breaking it. Jesus is saying, the law is really about your heart. It's about exposing what's going on underneath all the outward behavior. Jesus looks into the heart. See, we try the most outrageous and creative ways to trivialize sin, to reframe what's going on actually in our hearts but listen, it's so bad, Jesus says, it's worse than you can imagine. What's at stake is so much greater than you could have ever thought, and you don't stand a chance. The righteousness of the kingdom of heaven is too high, and it's too holy. And the, and the scribes and the Pharisees, they've been at this a long time. They've mastered all the external things of the law. They've, they've relished their discipline they take pride in their learning. They've sacrificed greatly to keep their scorecard clean and perfect. But you need more than that. A lot more. You can see why they didn't like Jesus. He says you need heaven's righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is saying to all those people in the crowd, and he's saying it to you, and he's saying it to me, that's why I came. You couldn't get to that righteousness. And so I brought it to you. Paul says it this way. And because of him, because of Jesus, you're in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom from God the righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Everything we needed 
Jesus came out of heaven into eternity. Came out of eternity into humanity, into history. Took on flesh. He brought to us what we need. And the only way to receive it is by faith. It's believing that. Believing that Jesus is everything you need to be right with God. That by God's grace, His love for you, He sent His Son. That you would believe that His Son is everything you need. And that by believing that, that He's the perfection you need to stand before God. He's, that He took the penalty you deserve so that you wouldn't have to. That he died on a cross in your place. He died your death so that you can live his life. And when you believe that, the Bible says you have taken hold of the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. Do you believe? What's the center of your authority? What are you listening to? What are you counting on? Where have you put your hope? If it's in anything other than Jesus, what Jesus says is, you don't stand a chance. You need more than all of that. I am Jesus. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, thanks for the morning. Thanks for the time that we have to be together. We thank you for all of those that in the history of our nation. You called to lay down their life for the freedom that we enjoy this morning to be together. And so we thank you for that on this Memorial Day weekend. But Father, more than that, we thank you for the life of your Son the life that He laid down for us so that we could have a freedom not only to meet, we could have a freedom to meet with You face to face for eternity, forever and ever and ever and ever. To be in Your presence and to know Your love. To never be separated from You. Father, grant us the faith to believe Your Son. It's in his name we pray, the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.